Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time. Today, Pacific News with Nick McClellan, journalist and author. Western Sahara mourns their late leader and I'll be speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association about the person who has died but also about events and just things that are happening which are giving people a bit of hope for the future for Western Sahara. I'll also be speaking with Natalie Lowry, environmentalist, about a proposed deep sea mining program project in PNG in the Bismarck Sea and Kate Lee from AFIDA she's the executive officer of AFIDA which is the ACTU Unionated Broad organization she's just come back from Nepal and Bangladesh and she'll be talking about the conditions in Nepal which is just over one year since the devastating earthquakes and the situation for garment workers in Bangladesh. And I'm afraid that in many areas, not much has changed. But first, let's hear it from, or from, yes, Mr Kevin Healy. A weak journalist, and when if we really want to get someone who has done us wrong, fills us with justifiable and out-of-character vitriol and hatred, I recommend we adopt the Lord Rupert of Wapping formula. Turn the victim's name into the most despised pejorative, Dan, synonymous with evil, evil, evil. Splash it all over your front page day after day after day, accompanied by derogatory pickies. Throw news reporting out the window and drag in frenetic campaigning. Then when the victim gives ground under the weight of daily attacks, attack the victim for giving ground. Dan crushed this morning's episode, utterly humiliated, thrown into question his capacity to head the state. It's a proven formula, so if we've got someone we want to get, refuse to forgive for winning an election that people got horribly wrong, for instance, Lord Rupert provides the infallible solution. Oh, did I mention it does help if we happen to own a newspaper or several hundred sundry media outlets? Wonder who Lord Rupert will support in the next state election. He he certainly keeps his cards close to, doesn't he? But at least on a positive, people across Victoria no longer ask, who's Dan? Lord Rupert's treatment almost makes us feel sorry for him. Elections. Oh yes, with almost four more long weeks of this election fever that has us so intrigued to go, it's slowly coming down. Once again, our very special week that was election coverage, capturing all that excitement that has true Blue Aussie in a fever. First up, big supremo Malcolm Tunnebull met a rat. <laughs> no, no, a real one. While out, that is, Malcolm out on a meet-the-people walk somewhere or other. Well, meet-the-people, the spin doctors and security deemed safe to get through the human barriers walk. Like all politicians, Malcolm would have felt completely comfortable most at home meeting a rat. We can be sure tiny a bit more for the bosses would agree. By the way, Rat, Malcolm chased the rodent vote. My superannuation policy is that duly bash up the workers should be superannuated. Hmm, 
don't know where that came from. The, the former Minister for Cities, Jamie Braggs like a man, whose victimisation by alcohol and sexual harassment, it was nothing to do with me, sue the distillery, sue her for being alluring. Victimisation has transmogrified his safe, caring business class seat into one which Malcolm has already visited twice, trying to save. Asked about some problem policy area rubber, kept repeating, as I said, people are talking about jobs and growth. Uh, which people, Jamie? Well, Malcolm and Scuttle them and me and... And? Uh, and Malcolm and Scuttle them and, and me. On that, watching Malcolm plead with us repeatedly upon... Uh, repeatedly to vote for jobs and growth in the great new economy, why doesn't someone ask him, how come if all that's so important, the caring business class government hasn't done it over the past three years when it's been the government? It's like the USR governing party parroting Make America Great Again in an election, a prime example of honestly incisive political self-awareness. Vote us to do what we haven't done. Today, Malcolm is visiting areas, well, about half the country impacted by a bout of unseasonable weather and its tragic consequences we, we now only get all year round. Everyone knows... Malcolm consoled the country. I believe in climate change, which many in my party believe is not climate change, and I respect their right to hold that understandable position, but everyone knows I do believe in climate change, but it's just that due to circumstances beyond my control, I am unable to do anything about it. Although, let me say, our policy of handing trillions from the public purse to the big, big polluters is working remarkably well, proven by the endorsements of the big, big polluters we hand the trillions to, who tell us how remarkably well it is working. Ah, yes, the policy you have when you haven't got a policy. A Melbourne economics professor has attacked the socialist policy to retain the upper tax level, in other words, not lower the tax level for the filthy bloated, because he argues it would spur tax avoidance. How it must hurt, cut the filthy bloated, to have to avoid tax. Don't those socialists have a lot to answer for? We put the big question to prominent filthy bloated Rick Ripoff. Uh, Rick, what level should tax be reduced to to prevent people like you indulging in a, in a bit of tax avoidance? Well, top of the heads, naught, or, or something sub-naught, springs to mind. But how can it be sub-naught? Oh, surely you understand. You, you pay no tax, which is sensible tax planning, and receive lots of subsidies, handouts, concessions. So those who too do pay tax because they have to work for a living <laughs> pay us not to pay tax. Win, 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 win uh, for you. Uh, who else is there? So you advocate a tax rate of naught for everyone. Good God, no. Workers must meet their responsibilities. Someone has to pay for what we claim as the sub-naught bit. Uh, thanks, Rick. Pleasure, pleasure. That was this week's Week That Was special in-depth election report. Hope it helps us decide. Debate has arisen over whether guys should be used to address men and women. Is it generic or is it generic?
must say I'm surprised women don't object to being called guy, although given the alternative would be dull, guys and dolls, maybe women just think guy has to be better than that, although I also object to blokes being called the ubiquitous guys. But my objection, and why I never use it, is its place in the steamrolling Americanization of our language, the cultural hijacking. That, I argue, is what we should be objecting to. On culture, after we saw great patriots, people who love true blue Aussie, well, people who love white Anglo-Saxon true blue Aussies who agree with them, proudly waved the flag we all love at that rally last Saturday week and find a sensible use for the flagpoles, this bloody academic Ros Ward, who runs an anti-true blue Aussie so-called safe schools program, brainwashing dear little children into believing people have a right to be different to be themselves to gender equality had to be sacked by La Trobe for calling our great flag racist, slandering it as Lord Rupert informed us, flag hater he headlined. Hard as it is to believe, some long-haired commie greenie wooden worker in iron lots sacrilegiously claim the true blue Aussie flag represents from its genesis the very basis of invasion and racism. The flag we love. And to make matters worse, poor abashed Lord Rupert must have been campaigning so hard on the pejorative hateful Dan he dropped his guard on defending our flag because after the long-haired commie lot campaigned that sacking someone from an opinion was an abuse of academic freedom and freedom of speech, poor, poor Latrobe was forced to re-employ this slanderous flag hater. Well, as Lord Rupert and his lackeys pointed out, she is a socialist, a commie. Doesn't that say it all? And she's brainwashing our dear little children. On non-elections for a new big supremo, the US of the UN of the world has endorsed the palace coup overthrown of Brazil, of, uh, overthrow of Brazilian uh, President Dilma Rousseff as a fine example of liberty, freedom and especially democracy. Owing to corruption, the neoliberal coup leader said, charging her with doing what every president before her had done to balance the budget, no personal gain whatever. Unfortunately for the new big supremo, Michel Temer, he's already lost half his cabinet in a week or so due to real corruption, including the Minister for Corruption, who lived up to his title. Most of them sprung on secret tapes trying to fix court cases about corruption and or plotting the overthrow of Rousseff, although Temer says the Minister for Corruption should stay on, presumably because he knows all about it and knows where the bodies are buried and therefore where not to look for them and where not to dig. But sadly for the economy, all this is getting in the way of privatising any profitable state enterprise that moves and imposing, reluctantly of course, austerity measures on those who were finding life just a little better under Rousseff. So imagine how bad things would have been if she'd been worse than just a left parliamentary Democrat. Oh, and if that sends shivers down Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten's spine back here, don't worry, little Billy. I said left. As the Fair Work Con Mission most unfairly gave the lowest of low paid a crushing 2.4% increase, caring employers said this would crucify them. 
In this day and age, it's very unreasonable, one caring employer bemoaned. And Retail Profits Association said the increase was double what it wanted. Ideally, their exorbitant wages should have been cut. Yes, yes, when would there be a day and age for a wage increase? Well, um, uh, uh, it's not that we don't care. Employing workers, creating jobs, jobs and growth is our whole raison d'etre. When day and age... Um, uh, oh, time's almost up, listener. We'll come back with his answer next week. On retailers, quick finally. Good to see ACTU Supremo Dave Oliver for the workers support the Shopping the Workers Union in reducing their members' wages. With friends like that, good afternoon. Good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And I'm sure if you were listening to the program before with our friend Mr Gaffney, you would have heard that it is the Radiothon next week. But you don't have to wait till next week. You can ring any time you like through the this week on nine four one nine eight three double seven pledge to this program or any other program that you support on three CR. But as he also said, next week is the big one where the whole program is devoted to making money for three CR. On the 31st of March, 1996, 3CR's new transmitter site at Hopper's Crossing was switched on. We have this enormous giant hand, which is about six foot long, carried by the worthy, notable listeners of 3CR. We'll press the community on air button to officially bring online the new 3CR transmission tower. We need your support during our 40th birthday Radical Radiothon. And the button is pressed! And the transmitter is now beaming its powerful message all over Melbourne. All over Melbourne. Donate now and keep 3CR beaming. And here's a little bit more of that man who was actually at that launch of the new transmitter. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. Next on Tuesday Home Time, journalist and author Nick McClellan. We're going to begin, Nick, and expand on a proposal to do away with 15 staff at the College of Asia-Pacific Studies at ANU, and this, that's just the beginning, isn't it? The Australian National University has been really the hub of 
Pacific Studies in Australia going back decades. There are a number of other universities, um, James Cook, Queensland University, even here Swinburne in Melbourne has a small Pacific Studies program, but it's half a semester. Whereas ANU has always been a hub for research in the Pacific, the research school, now the College of Asia and the Pacific, has been a real world-class institution with both practical and and, uh, theoretical research into the Pacific. Academics at ANU have been involved in um, a whole range of uh, side initiatives like publishing the Journal of Pacific History, which is the premier journal of history covering the island's region, going back, once again, decades. And as we're seeing at universities all around the country in times of public funding cutbacks, there's pressure on ANU to uh, reduce budgets, uh, to redeploy staff. Um, That's a polite term for making them redundant. And there's been a particular focus. Uh, That's true for Asia studies, where some really eminent historians and researchers um, have uh, lost their jobs uh, in recent months. But now it looks like Pacific History, for example, is about to lose a couple of positions. And the funding cutbacks are affecting a number of think tanks and institutions at ANU that are really crucial for research and understanding about our region and also bringing the voices of the Pacific into Australian debates. Do they have connections with the University of the South Pacific in Fiji? Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, uh, interactions and students uh, go on exchange, uh, researchers collaborate through that area. There's been a, a program called the State Society and Governance in Melanesia program running at the ANU uh, in, in this college for some time. SSGM, to use the initials, State Society and Governance in Melanesia, has really focused on key countries, Fiji, Solomons, uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, they don't do enough on New Caledonia. They seem to think the French territories are not part of the Melanesia. But apart from that, it's been a really important place for holding conferences, for doing research, for putting out discussion papers, policy papers and so on. And their funding has gone up and down like a yo-yo. In the good times, they've been given significant funding. But just recently, with uh, at a time that Australia, over the last 18 months, has cut $1.24 billion, $1.24 billion out of the aid budget, is uh, obviously seen massive cutbacks. And this is one of the problems, that the institutions that are crucial for Australia's engagement with the island's region, are being damaged. Last year, the Australian government cut the aid budget by a billion dollars in one fell swoop. That's a 20% cut, uh, basically cutting it from $5 billion a year to $4 billion a year. And how much of that relates to the Pacific? At that time, most of the cuts were focused on other areas, focused on uh, Africa and Asia. And so you had a 70% cut for all programs in Africa, Julie Bishop, our foreign minister, talks a lot about development effectiveness, but they didn't go through and say, oh, this is a really good program, this one not so good, this one could be run better, this one, you know. They just went, right, 70% for every African country, whack. 40% cut for every country, whack, in Asia. Oh, sorry, one country got left off, Cambodia. Wonder why. Wonder why. That's the country where we've given $40 million to the Cambodian government and $11 million extra to IOM, the International Organisation for Migration, to resettle refugees from Nauru and Manus. So far, five people have gone, of which four haven't lasted. To a very repressive government. Absolutely. And we've given $55 million to Cambodia. But apart from Cambodia, every other country in Asia last year got a 40% haircut. The Pacific, by and large, got off relatively lightly last year. 5% cut to Papua New Guinea. Pacific regional programs were cut. But 
We've seen this year's budget, another $224 million cut from the aid budget this year. So a quarter of a billion dollars nearly taken out of the aid budget once again. So we're at the lowest level of overseas aid, as it's called Official Development Assistance, ODA, the lowest level ever in Australian history. Does that affect the South Pacific Forum? Absolutely, because Pacific regional programs have seen 60 million odd cut out this year, and a lot of funding for regional and multilateral organisations goes through the Pacific regional program. And there are a number of generic regional programs. For example, there's a program on women's empowerment and uh, opportunities for income generation and so on that's across the region rather than focused on one Pacific Island country. And it's programs like that that are are funded through the regional budget. And so we've seen significant cuts. But it's the institutions within Australia. I mean, those are cuts that are affecting the Pacific countries directly. But we're also seeing funding cutbacks to institutions within Australia, like the research school at ANU, that play an important part in our engagement with the region. What's their research focused on? A lot of it's uh, quite mixed. There's a lot of anthropological studies, linguistics and so on, uh, but uh, some key work, for example, on food security. A research team at ANU led by a guy called Mike Burke, who's done amazing work on food security in Papua New Guinea. And they're really world leaders on analysing food security in Pacific Island countries. Mike Burke and his team published a really interesting paper earlier this year about the El Nino drought in Papua New Guinea, and they were looking at the effect on people's you know, agriculture and nutrition and food supply because of the El Nino drought and documented that up to 770,000 people, about 10% of the PNG population, were facing serious problems of food insecurity because of the El Nino drought that we've seen across uh, the Melanesian region over this uh, last summer. Um, That's a significant proportion of the population. And that sort of applied research goes beyond just academic work to look really at problems that are facing people in contemporary ways. We've seen a lot of damage to other institutions doing work on the science related to climate change. Don't Um, mention that word. Well, I mean, you're allowed to mention it nowadays, um, but but under the Abbott Interregnum in 2013-14, public servant bureaucrats literally chopped stuff out of the aid budget that mentioned the words climate change. So the Rudd and Gillard governments had a program called uh, the International Climate Change Adaptation Initiative, a clumsy acronym, ICCAI, um, which was funding, as the name suggests, adaptation to climate change. Now, that was removed from the aid budget under Julie Bishop's watch. There is still some climate work going on. Indeed, the government, now that Turnbull's back, is drafting a new climate strategy for the aid program because under Tony Abbott uh, we withdrew a lot of support for initiatives. We cut funding, for example, to the Green Climate Fund, the new global mechanism that's involved in that. We were co-chair of the fund. A senior DFAT official named Ewan MacDonald was the co-chair alongside South Africa of the fund. And in 2013-14 we gave up that position. And it was only again in 2015 that we were re-elected to the position after Abbott was gone. And when you look at Australian domestic institutions like the CSIRO and Bureau of Meteorology, just this week we've seen the weird weather that's affecting the east coast of Australia, incredible damage to coastal areas in in Sydney along the New South Wales coast, Tasmania as well. And as someone said this morning, the new norm. Well, you'd think that we'd put a bit of effort into applied science uh, as well as uh, uh, theoretical science to, to monitor what's going on. But we've seen proposals to cut positions or redeploy 
famous word, redeploy positions within the CSIRO, that's really going to affect a lot of climate change science, and that not only affects Australia, but also affects the Pacific Islands region. Well, for example, under the International Climate Change Adaptation Initiative, this program within the aid budget that was mentioned, there was a major funding for a science research program called the Pacific Climate Change Science Program. And the Pacific Climate Change Science Program ran over multiple countries and multiple years and was doing things like strengthening bureaus of meteorology around the region, training up some PhD students in Australia who could go back to work as meteorologists in Pacific countries, working with the Fiji Regional Meteorological Centre, and that's the, the body that monitors cyclones around the region. Um, now, it's not rocket science when you look at what's happened with the damage to cyclone caused by Cyclone Pam in Vanuatu, 2014, by Cyclone Winston in Fiji, both of which were really unprecedented Category 5 cyclones, two within 18 months. And you'd think that doing some research about the intensity and potentially the frequency of cyclones in the South Pacific would be money well invested, given we had to clean up the mess from these cyclones, both working alongside our, our counterparts in the Pacific to address these sort of problems, and yet we've seen funding for Pacific science within the CSRO, within the Bureau of Meteorology, constrained by the sort of budget cuts, by the staffing cuts that these public sector organisations have been hit with in recent years. What else is happening? We could name other institutions that are involved in really collaborative work uh, around the region. One more example is, say, the volunteers programs. Declare my conflict of interest. 20 years ago, I worked for what was then Overseas Service Bureau, which ran the Australian Volunteers Abroad program. These are programs where young and not so young Australians work alongside their counterparts in Asia, in the Pacific, in Africa, as teachers, as engineers, as climate activists, as uh, women's rights organisers, a whole range of development positions, often in rural and regional areas, uh, outlying islands in the Pacific. Uh, it's a real front-line sort of program where ordinary Australians are working over two or three years alongside their counterparts, offering mentoring roles, making a significant contribution. Now, last year's budget, volunteer programs got a 30% cut. Uh, this year they got a further cut. Um, it's a really striking example where a program that's working at community level or with government institutions that need strengthening in neighbouring Pacific countries has been cut. Um, and the number of countries where volunteers are deployed has been cut. So, you know, less countries, less sectors, less people. So in many cases, whether it's the CSIRO, the Bureau of Meteorology, researchers at the Australian National University, volunteer programs, the very fact that AusAid, our independent statutory aid body, has been merged within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to be more aligned with our foreign policy, more importantly, to be more aligned with our trade policy, um, you can see that a whole range of public institutions are under enormous pressure, and it's very expensive to operate in the Pacific, depending on how you count, between 22 and 26 countries and territories in the region, quite expensive to travel in the region. So when institutions within Australia are facing cutbacks, they tend to want to cut programs in the Pacific because it's not their core mandate, and yet it's vital work. And if uh, the cyclones that have hit countries like Vanuatu and Fiji have not made that point that the, the weird weather we're experiencing is the new normal, that all scientific projections suggest that we're going to face uh, increased intensity in cyclones in coming years as the waters warm 
the oceans warm, and ocean acidification is going to cause incredible damage to the reefs. You see the debate in the papers about the Great Barrier Reef. Well, that's affecting reef ecologies right across the Pacific with coral bleaching uh, caused in part by the El Nino phenomenon, in part by ocean acidification and other problems. You know, these sort of cutbacks are really short-sighted. But, of course, these cutbacks are happening to public sector organisations and we're not seeing the same sort of cuts to private sector that are operating in the islands region, so-called on behalf of you and I as taxpayers. Well, they're doing very nice, thank you. Well, the classic example is companies like Broad Spectrum, which has been given the contract to operate the camps in uh, Manus and Nauru. Which conveniently changed its name. Yeah, it used to be Transfield Services, and indeed they changed their name as a branding exercise because Transfield was worried that Transfield Services, which was the actual subsidiary involved in the camps, was getting such a bad reputation because of the human rights abuses that are going on within the two camps. They changed the name to Broad Spectrum, as if people would notice. And Broad Spectrum got a, a Transfield, as it was, got a contract for $1.2 billion for operating these, uh, these camps. So at the same time that we're seeing cuts in other areas, that sort of cutbacks hasn't happened to companies like Broad Spectrum. The scandal is that they've also relied on non-profit and uh, humanitarian organisations to do some of the welfare work that the companies are not experienced in doing. So you've seen bodies like the Salvation Army and Save the Children Fund get involved in providing welfare services to the asylum seekers and refugees detained in Manus and Nauru, then being left to carry the can. People may have followed the case where Save the Children Fund, a number of staff, were falsely accused of coaching asylum seekers towards self-harm and of providing information falsely about the situation there. Those people were stood down, were in many cases deported from Nauru with uh, limited natural justice, uh, limited right to argue their case. And after a series of inquiries culminating in the Moss Review, it was found that those charges were false. And the government on a Friday afternoon, just before deadline uh, uh, for the news, um, announced that they were going to pay unnamed amount of compensation to save the children for the reputational damage that had been done. Bad luck for the people who lost their jobs and had their reputation tarred by this sort of situation. Um, so we're seeing these sorts of funding allocations when it suits Australia. And uh, massive amounts of funding has gone to, say, Papua New Guinea in the past to um, keep the Manus camp open despite the fact, as we've been shown recently, that it's in breach of the PNG Constitution and PNG's Supreme Court has ruled that uh, it's invalid, uh, the changes purporting to uh, regulate uh, the people being based in Manus. Section 42 of the PNG Constitution says that everyone has the right to the lawyer of their own choice. Um, well, that's clearly not the case for the asylum seekers detained on Manus. The Supreme Court ruled that it was invalid to deprive people of their liberty, another clause in the PNG Constitution, and that was the case when people were deployed against their will to Manus. We'd heard nothing since, have we? Well, no, there's negotiations going on behind the scenes. The Australian government, Peter Dutton, is talking tough, that's saying nothing will change and that everyone's going to be resettled in Papua New Guinea. I think they're hoping that the PNG government will not cause a scene between now and July the 2nd. Uh, there's Possibly that could be a date of some importance for the uh, Turnbull government. What the problem is, though, is that the PNG government also faces elections next year. And the Australian media really hasn't made the point that the case was brought in 2013 against the government, the National Executive Council of the O'Neill government, by the opposition parties. 
So the PNG opposition brought the case and won the case in the PNG Supreme Court. And for the Australian government to try and encourage the PNG government under Peter O'Neill to ignore or delay or downplay a full bench Supreme Court ruling at a time when the government's under criticism for corruption, is under student protests uh, with University of Papua New Guinea students uh, protesting against the government, is just another example of Australia really using its own domestic interests and damaging governance in neighbouring countries. If O'Neill goes, who will replace him? Well, there'll be uh, a bit of musical chairs within uh, uh, the ruling party. You know, Most governments in PNG are coalition governments and, and need to form together. O'Neill uh, won the last elections very comfortably and uh, there's a lot of uh, debate about who might succeed him. That's further down the track. Uh, he's well entrenched and uh, standing firm against the public protests, particularly, say, by University of Papua New Guinea students. The commitment to good governance, to anti-corruption measures and so on, fluctuates. Uh, we've seen this with Nauru. People may have seen news headlines that Nauru's about to decriminalise homosexuality and end the death penalty in Nauru. Personally, I think those are both appropriate steps to take for any government. There should be no death penalty. Uh, homosexuality should not be a crime. But there are many other Pacific countries where you might want to address the question of gay rights. Why is it happening in Nauru at the moment? A cynic might say that the Australian government wants to pressure Nauru to resettle asylum seekers who have been given refugee status in Nauru and that's not appropriate to resettle people in a country with the death penalty that uh, it's criminal offence to, to engage in homosexual activity. For asylum seekers and refugees who are gay, seriously going to leave them in a country that has uh, criminal charges like that facing them? Even when things are, uh, seem to be going well, and as I say, personally I encourage the Nauru government to get rid of re regressive legislation um, but you have to wonder why it's happening at this time. Uh, the pressure that's coming behind the scenes, I believe, from the Australian government on these issues is, uh, is just uh, shameful in that they're not putting the same sort of pressure on other Pacific governments that have similar legislation. That's one thing, isn't it, that we don't hear anything about the impact of these concentration camps on the, the citizens of Manus and Nauru. People in the Pacific are pretty pragmatic about this. There has been some employment uh, opportunities uh, from the camps. So people in Manus um, have got uh, some attempt for the second time around to get small and medium enterprises up in Manus to uh, benefit from growing food, for example, from providing security services and things like that. Uh, so there is some employment. But Ronnie Knight, who's the MP for Manus, said, look, we knew this was never going to last, so we were going to get as much out of it as we could while it was there, and the fact that, you know, we knew that it, it was illegal under the Constitution, but we thought that we'd be able to get something out of it while it was happening. But even then, people haven't really benefited. There's a case currently underway. A security guard has complained in, uh, in Nauru. He was earning $4.25 an hour. That's not the sort of wage uh, levels that you'd expect if you were being paid uh, uh, at Australian rates, and I suspect that Australian guards who are involved in uh, the detention process in Nauru would be earning full award rates plus penalty rates. And yet a Nauruan was earning $4.25 an hour. And the companies announced, well, that's the local wage rate. We can't pay you more than public servants would get. Otherwise, all Nauru's public servants would resign and earn the higher rates that Australians are earning. So this is you know, a classic example where Nauruans who do get employment from these camps are being paid as second-class citizens. And that's causing a lot of anger in Nauru that that sort of discrimination goes on within the, uh, the operations. 
Where does the ANZ Bank come into it? Well, this is another example where private interests are benefiting while the public sector is, is challenged. Under Julie Bishop and under the Liberal government, we've seen a push to have greater private sector involvement in the aid program. The government has said that private sector, you know, that the aid program should be used to create an enabling environment uh, for the private sector. But we're also seeing more direct involvement so that uh, instead of the government subcontracting work in the uh, Pacific to non-profit organisations, they're directly providing funding to private sector corporations like the ANZ Bank or Carnival Cruises uh, to run programs in the region. And so the ANZ has been given funding from the Australian aid budget, from taxpayers' money, to run rural banking programs. One would think that possibly they might afford it themselves. It also comes at a time where there's growing remittances flowing back from seasonal workers into the Pacific. And so many people in rural areas of uh, the Pacific don't have a bank account. So in in Fiji, for example, uh, which is one of the more industrialised and and, uh, so-called advanced countries in the Pacific, about 300,000 people don't have a bank account, mainly rural farmers and rural villages and so on. So the Australian government is subsidising ANZ to expand its rural banking And those are the sort of people who are being recruited for seasonal worker programs or for work overseas in the British Army and other places. And the remittances flowing back, the ANZ obviously, I think, has an interest in money flowing back through their bank rather than through Western Union, which is a a mechanism that's widely used but very expensive for people to send money back from their work overseas. The obvious question, though, is for the Bank of South Pacific, which is a Papua New Guinea-based bank, Did they get a chance to tender for this money? Did they get a chance to put in a bid saying, we'd like to do rural banking programs? No, the Australian corporation was given subsidies from the Australian taxpayers' money in the aid budget. Uh, So there's real questions about transparency, about how the decision was taken that one bank rather than another bank got this money. Why not Westpac? Why not the Bank of South Pacific? Why did ANZ get it? I think these are legitimate questions that, that, you know, the aid uh, accountability that governments always talk about. You know, Australia always talks about the need for governance and accountability measures for countries receiving Australian aid, but I think there's the same need for transparency, for accountability, for the granting of aid to one or other contractor. And the shipping? Carnival Cruises is a major shipping line that runs uh, tour cruises. Uh, uh, They often stop off in Vanuatu, uh, in New New Caledonia and other places for people who go out on... uh, on a, a, a cruise, Carnival once again was given funding directly from the aid program to look at um, providing employment opportunities and uh, tourism spin-offs uh, for people in Vanuatu, for example. There's some real potential to have uh, locals better employment prospects from these sort of major aid programs. But once again, were other companies given the same opportunity as Carnival? What was the tendering process? What sort of information is available about how these schemes are managed? How accountable are these companies for development effectiveness? Do they go through the same monitoring, review and evaluation that other aid projects go through? Are those reviews and evaluations publicly available as other reviews of non-profit or NGO activities have to be available. These sort of questions, you know, are really important when we're talking about development effectiveness. So I think the point I've been trying to hammer is that at a time that public sector organisations that are engaging with our Pacific neighbours are under significant pressure, the same sort of rigour is not being put onto private sector organisations, private corporations that are benefiting significantly from the immigration budget, from the aid budget in the region. People in the Pacific notice this. 
people in the Pacific know that Australia is putting hundreds of millions of dollars into Nauru and Manus and Cambodia to benefit the Australian government so that politicians can stand up and say, we stop the boats, regardless of both the human cost to the asylum seekers who are detained uh, indefinitely without hope of resettlement on these islands and to the local communities who see the sort of distortion of their economy and indeed their society by these sort of measures. I'm wondering if the aid budget is also having an impact or an interference in the, the migrant workers coming from the Pacific, or is that separate altogether? Currently, the, the lead agency for the Seasonal Worker Program mm. is, in fact, the Department of Employment. It's changed its name several times, but uh, um, the Employment Ministry is responsible for uh, managing that. There is a task force that includes immigration, includes DFAT, uh, what was AusAid, but it's become really a labour market program uh, within Australia rather than uh, an aid program. It has benefits in terms of the remittance flows, but it also has costs, everything from family separation for seasonal workers who come to the potential exploitation of seasonal workers. And what we're seeing is an increasing awareness that the model that's being used in Australia with so-called approved employers, who are essentially labour hire companies who do the recruitment and manage the actual employment, there's a lot of concern about deductions from people's wages. Originally, with the international airfare, the employer would pay up front for the seasonal worker, you know, who's often a rural villager, doesn't have $1,000 in their bank to, to get them to Australia. So the employer would pay the airfare up front and then recoup half the costs from that over time, so deductions from the wages of the worker. But we're seeing more and more that there are increasing numbers of deductions for accommodation, for domestic transport, and gradually the balance of costs is being shifted as the program tries to get off the ground. The balance of costs is being shifted from the employer onto the overseas worker. Now, these are often poor rural workers uh, or urban people who come out of squatter settlements and peri-urban settlements uh, looking for wage opportunities that they just don't get at home. So they're working in New Zealand and Australia under these seasonal worker programs. And now a number of unions are starting to speak out about the imbalance of these deductions. One classic case up in Gaira, New South Wales, where um, eight Vanuatu workers, workers from Vanuatu, were uh, living in one house, paying $100 each a week rent. The money was being deducted from their wages to pay for the house at $100 each. So it's 800 bucks each. Now, the house is advertised for $320. That means that if they'd rented it themselves, apart from having to pay bond and all the rest, they wouldn't be paying 100 bucks each a week. They'd be paying 40 bucks each a week. You see those sorts of deductions. And so people who come to earn money to send back for family, to improve housing, to maybe start up a small business, to buy solar panels so that they've got electricity in their rural village. These sort of remittance flows are open for exploitation. And uh, in a number of cases now, unions are starting to collaborate. The National Union of Workers in Australia has signed an agreement last October with the Vanuatu National Workers Union to collaborate um, across international boundaries so that workers uh, um, can be better trained Uh, in pre-departure about their legal rights, about labour law when they come to Australia. Similarly, that the union within Australia can help to try and organise workers uh, as they're employed. And horticulture, fruit picking, uh, agricultural work is notoriously unorganised, casual labour. The AWU was an area that used to cover agricultural workers. Caesar Mellum and uh, 
a guy called Bill Shorten, I think, were, were key involved in that union, and they really haven't done the legwork to organise workers who are coming in under these temporary labour schemes. Although the seasonal worker program is pretty small, it's only a few thousand people a year, currently it's being expanded into northern Australia, but the real area is with working holidaymakers. Latest figures I saw from December last year, there are 143,000 working holidaymakers, people who come originally on a one-year visa, but if they work for three months in a rural or regional area, 88 days to be technically precise, they get a second year on their visa. So people go fruit-picking for a few months, and that allows them to have a two-year backpacker visa rather than a one-year backpacker visa. But we've seen really scandalous examples of people being ripped off in that situation. Four Corners did a program last year which showed a number of Taiwanese backpackers who were being you know, paid scandalously low wages but also facing sexual harassment from uh, foremen and uh, other employees in the place where they were working and when they complained were being threatened with uh, being dobbed into immigration so they lose their visa. And we're seeing problems like this all over with temporary labour schemes. Section 457 has been an issue of some dispute for the last few years. The Deegan inquiry into the 457 skilled worker visa raised a lot of concern about that. We've had the international students working at 7-Eleven and really shocking examples where people were being underpaid by 7-Eleven. We've had the recent case where Coles has been uh, underpaying workers in a deal with the uh, the Shoppies Union and the allegation that uh, the union was uh, willing to trade off conditions uh, of some of its members uh, to benefit the union. So in all these sort of programs, if they're not properly regulated, if they're not uh, governed by labour law, and if unions don't have a proper say in the management and operation of these programs, you're going to have more and more temporary labourers being exploited And because they're not citizens, they don't have the right, the full protection that Australian workers have. I'm in favour of some of these schemes. I don't believe that we should be closing the doors to foreign workers coming to Australia. But I think that the regulation and management of these schemes is a real, real battleground. This is not just little schemes here and there. I've seen figures 600,000. I've seen figures up to a million people working as temporary labour migrants through skilled worker programs, working holidaymakers, overseas students, all the New Zealanders who are here um, who've come uh, uh, from New Zealand and working often in uh, uh, industries like construction and so on. There's a lot of people who are not Australian citizens working in our labour market. And this is a real issue for the Australian labour movement. Um, How do we help organise those workers? How do we help protect them in the workplace? To go back to the beginning, Nick, is there any chance that the proposal to redeploy the 15 staff at the university in Canberra could be changed, could be overturned? There's certainly a lot of uh, work going on to um, challenge this. Uh, Petitions come from a number of eminent historians and Pacific researchers uh, uh, raising concern about the sort of structural damage that this will do to Asian and Pacific studies. All universities are facing this sort of uh, cutbacks and the deregulation that the government's talking about for the higher education sector is a battleground. Uh, Unions like the NTEU are involved in these sorts of disputes. But I think uh, uh, we need to look beyond academics themselves. Some might say they're just protecting their jobs. Well, yeah, but we need to look broader than that. We need to look about how institutions, public institutions, play a role in our engagement with the world around us, with Asia, with our Pacific neighbours? How can research, can studies, can work done within these institutions benefit 
our neighbours rather than just benefit the private sector. And I think there's a, a real battle going on within key institutions, universities, research centres like the Bureau of Meteorology and the uh, CSIRO, uh, volunteer programs and non-profit aid organisations. These are areas that are sort of slipping by and it's not just the, the bottom line about the money being taken away, it's about the damage to the institution. Here we are on a radio station and you think about the damage to Radio Australia. Uh, we talked about the gutting of Radio Australia a couple of years ago. These are institutions that don't have a very high public profile within Australia but are vitally important for ordinary people in our Pacific neighbourhood. People who listen to the radio, like Radio Australia, rely on it, say for things like cyclone warnings. I was in Futuna, an island, the southeasternmost island of Vanuatu, in uh, 2014. I was looking at an NGO program on disaster preparedness and climate resilience, a really wonderful small-scale funded program um, that was working across four provinces in Vanuatu. And I met a young woman named Miriam on the, the weather coast of Futuna. They don't get phone um, messages there. They don't get Radio Vanuatu there because on the, on the other side of the mountain from the main airstrip, the one telephone tower on the island. And she says, we rely on Radio Australia for cyclone warnings. And, of course, that program, that NGO program, finished in February 2015 because the second phase of the program was not funded due to aid cuts in Australia. And so this program on cyclone resilience, on uh, preparing people to deal with uh, uh, disasters, ended after a three-year first phase. It couldn't go on to second and subsequent phases because the money wasn't there. A month after the program shut down and all the local workers were sacked, Cyclone Pam hit Vanuatu. And I spent days trying to ring uh, people on Futuna. Of course, the one phone line there had been blown down by the cyclone trying to find out what had happened to the villages that I'd visited in 2014. They fared pretty well, we eventually found, because they'd done a lot of preparatory work. They'd done vulnerability studies for what would happen to our village if there was a cyclone. They'd been trialling food preparedness, burying foods, cyclone foods, they call them, preserving foods, so that when their crops were blown down um, and took six months to regrow, they'd have food supplies uh, to supplement the sort of stuff that humanitarian and, and UN agencies might bring in. Um, but Futuna is one of the most far-flung islands, tiny airstrip. Uh, um, they were amongst the last to be reached as the larger population centres were affected. So they were looking after themselves at first. And it's, that's the sort of thing that aid programs could do, should do, rather than simply subsidise companies like Broad Spectrum. And it's interviews with people like Nick McClellan that make 3CR so important. And you'll have your chance next week. As I said, you can ring any time you like and donate on nine four one nine eight three double seven. But I do hope that on the program next week, you do me proud and make sure that I got lots and lots of money because I've got a big target to reach. Palestinians are living under a crushing occupation as exiles or as second-class citizens inside Israel. This must stop, and Australia can do something about it. Right now, politicians are listening to what matters to people. They want to secure as many votes as possible this federal election. Please go to ivotepalestine.org.au and ask your candidates to pledge their support for Palestine. This is a campaign of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Please spend just one minute visiting ivotepalestine.org.au. A 3CR supporter. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday.
Are you a book reader and collector? Could any of your books find a new home? Why not donate unused books to the upcoming Big Red Book Fair? This year, the book fair is on Saturday the 25th of June at Trades Hall from 10 till 4. If you have books to donate, please contact the New International Bookshop today on 03 3744. That's 03 3744. Or go to our website, newinternationalbookshop.org.au, a 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. now is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association to talk about events and developments pertaining to Western Sahara. But first, Kate, the death of the president of the Polisario Front. It's uh, Mohamed Abdelaziz, who was both the Secretary General of the Polisario Front, the independence movement, and president of the Sahrawi Republic, based in the refugee camps in southwest Algeria. He died, sadly, on the 31st of May at 68 years of age. He'd been president since 1982 and leader of the Polisarios for 40 years. So he was a very, very important and central figure for all of the Sahrawi people, those left in the occupied zone as well. So he's virtually devoted his adult life to the struggle. Definitely, and for that reason I think a lot of people feel quite sad that he was taken a bit early with lung cancer, sadly, so he hasn't lived to see his country liberated, which would have been his dream. Was he part of the armed struggle? He was, definitely. He started off as a soldier. That was how the Polisario Front began, First, there was a very peaceful movement, but the leader got captured and disappeared, in quotes, and never heard of again. So others argued in favour of having an armed struggle to combat the Spanish presence at that time. It was 1973 that the Polisario Front was actually founded. On the 10th of May and on the 20th of May, the armed struggle began. So they went straight into fighting. And Mohammed Abdelaziz was quickly elevated to being in charge of a whole military area during those early days. In 1975, when the Moroccans started invading, Spain withdrew and, you know, he was then fighting. But quite early in that struggle against Morocco and Mauritania, which was invading from the south, the leader that they had, which were, who was a very charismatic figure known as El Wali, El Wali Mustafa Said, 
he was killed in action. Then uh, Mohammed Abdelaziz was elected to replace him. So he's been at the helm ever since then. But in 1982, when he was made not only leader of the Polisario, but president, he started working more on the political front than on the military front, and he moved to the refugee camps and helped them to organize themselves and to develop what is basically a state in waiting so that they thought at that stage, I'm sure, that victory was going to uh, happen within the foreseeable future and they needed to be ready to take over immediately and hit the ground running as a properly functioning uh, state. That's what they achieved, except that they're still running, as it were, without being in the, having the actual country to run. They're only running the state in exile. To be able to do that in the desert in a refugee camp. Yeah, it requires a lot of adaptation, but with their nomadic roots, of course, they're very used to that kind of thing. People who've been used to moving camp from time to time, it wasn't for them as difficult as it might be for others to set up a camp. I was very fascinated to see in 2010 when there was a huge mass protest in the Occupy Territory. They went out into the desert and created a camp, protest camp, that very soon, like within days, it was organised beautifully and they had little committees looking after rubbish and supply of food and supply of water and all those things, just like they'd done in the refugee camps, except that these were Sahrawi people who had been living under Moroccan occupation in basically a sedentary city life, and they didn't have immediate habits of the nomad, but they had the residual traditions that enabled them to to do that. So it's it's part and parcel of the way they approach things. Was he also going overseas into other countries? Mohamed Abdelaziz did travel to some extent, of course, because he did have to go to the United Nations and to the European Union and meet heads of government in many countries. But he really had a different team working as diplomats and including the person, the coordinator, working with the United Nations mission that was set up in 1991, known as Minerso. That is a different person who called uh, Mohammed Khadad. He's been the coordinator with Minerso. And the team of negotiators, when they had face-to-face talks, he didn't take part in that. So he's kept himself that little bit distant, but he could hold together the military wing and the diplomatic wing and the people. And I think that's why he got re-elected and re-elected, because he had that ability to keep the social cohesion going and to keep everybody focused on the one thing they needed to have as their top priority, which was to gain a vote of self-determination with a view to getting independence in their country. When did you meet him? The first time I met him, I think, was 1999, when I went to the Yukoko conference that was held in Las Palmas in the Canary Islands. James Baker had just taken over as leader of the Minoso mission. There was a very live hope that the referendum would eventually be held. 
uh, within the 12 months. And so it was quite an exciting time. I met him as part of a British delegation to the conference. We were all brought to meet him. We had been the hosts of the previous international Yukoko conference. Yes, like a very kindly, benign presence. It wasn't all that easy to speak with him, although he did speak French and Spanish quite fluently, I understand, not English, but he preferred to always use his own language, uh, which is the Hassaniya dialect of Arabic, with an interpreter. There was always, for me, that little distance that wasn't so easy to communicate with him. But uh, no, I think he was uh, clearly very well loved as well as um, respected and and, uh, inspiring for people. There would have been big celebrations of his life. I've seen photos on Facebook from some of my Spanish friends who went. They accompanied Aminatou Haidar, who's the really regarded as the leader of the resistance under occupation and who spends a lot of time in Europe. But she, I don't know if she happened to be in Europe at the time, but she went with the Spanish group, people from all over the Solidarity Movement and from other states of Africa, a high-level delegation from Algeria and from the African Union and from some Latin American states. Other countries sent greetings and condolences from Ireland, for example. And they met first for the funeral in the Sahrawi refugee camps last Friday. And then on Saturday, they all travelled to the liberated zone There, the burial took place in a very simple grave right out in the desert, about 100 kilometres from his hometown, which is separated by the military wall that the Moroccans built to keep the Sahrawis out and to keep the others in. Moving on to what is being called the world's most remote film festival. Right, yes. Now, this is an exciting opportunity that is available for Australians because we've got two people who are going already and they've invited others to join them. It's called Fisahara, like Film Sahara, I think, in the refugee camps. It's in the remote remote of the refugee camps, actually, 200 kilometres away from the other little cluster of camps known as Dakhla. It's held sort of rather, it's rather romantic because it's held always at night because they project in the open air so they can't uh, show the films except when after dark. Uh, Then a huge crowd gathers and this temporary screen is put up by members of the Spanish film industry largely. They tend to run it. But during the day there's all kinds of other cultural activities that go on including workshops on filmmaking for young Saharawis. There are other music groups that meet or other cultural groups. One time a British drama group went and they were doing drama during the daytime. There's lots happening all the time. You don't just have to sit around and wait for the evening. Visitors are accommodated with Saharawi families, which is always an interesting experience. How long has it been going? Oh, I think it must be uh, getting on for 10 years now. It's been going quite a while. People who go are always very excited. There was a beautiful 
account written by Paul Laverty, who's the scriptwriter for Ken Loach, and he took his film called Sweet Sixteen there whenever that the year of that release was. You could check that. And uh, he wrote up a lovely account of, of visiting there and the excitement that there was for these Saharawis who'd, most of whom have seen a television screen, but they'd never seen a big screen. But now they they will have seen it before, but um, it's still quite an exciting event because they don't have it every day. It's only once a year. And do people come from the other camps for the festival? I'm sure they do, yes, they must do, and, and quite a big international a group of people come and and take part in it. Just wondering what they do for food because I know food is rationed in those camps. The it is yes. I think somehow the government manages to find ways of helping the families who accommodate their guests to provide food. When I've been there with a family, embarrassing because they give us really very good food and better than they would have normally from on their United Nations food program uh, rations, which only include um, lentils, uh, rice, a, go- a grain of some kind, whether barley or wheat, from which they can make couscous, and oil, there's five foodstuffs, and sugar they get, I think. Where do the vegetables and fruit and meat come from? That actually the European Union provides a tin of sardines once a week or something like that for the families. And there is a chicken farm in a controlled climate shed. It's the only battery farm that I can justify the existence of. And the one of the Spanish regions has funded that. And although there's, a, to my mind, a vast number of chickens like 15,000 or 1,500 or 15, it still only provides an egg a day for, an egg a week or something for the the vulnerable food groups, the pregnant women, the children, the old people. And so if they want eggs, some families have got chickens, uh, or one or two. Some families, most families I think have got a goat to get some milk and occasionally meat because... now, there are uh, there is a bit of money in the camps. There wasn't for many years. The whole thing operated without money, but at a particular point, and I think it was in the late nineties, the former employees of Spanish government jobs in the Spanish colonial period gained a pension pension rights. And so those people have had real money coming in. And some of those have set up little shops. And they go into Tindouf, the Algerian town nearest to them, which is a big market town. And they bring tomatoes. They used, when I was there in 1998, you would just see somebody sitting by a roadside with a crate of tomatoes. Or in one case, I saw a camel's head on the ground to indicate that they had camel meat. And yes, it makes us sort of look the other way, but to them that's a wonderful thing. They do like camel meat, and it's a very big delicacy for them. But since then, really quite a commercial area has set up in most of the camps, and they've got little shops and they sell things other than food. They sell toiletries and uh, clothes and other things like that. What's the details if people 
might be thinking of going to there in October, isn't it? Dates are October the 11th to the 16th. If uh, you'll be, I think, probably travelling by charter flight from Madrid, that will get over a lot of difficulties in terms of getting visas and all of those formalities. There is a, a, a film festival website and there is an application form that you can fill in there. Uh, the cost for the film festival itself is very modest. It's something along the lines of 750 euros, which includes all transport and accommodation and access to the whole festival program. But, of course, you, you'd have to add on the your fare to get to Madrid. That, that would be at your own expense. Films Under the Stars. Yes, it's a, it's a romantic idea and, and it's an exciting time and everyone enjoys themselves. So it's a very nice way to visit the camps and to get to know some actual Sahrawis because in Australia we don't have very many Sahrawis living here. And I think once you really get to know the people, you can't help but love them, yes. Next to the Venice Architectural Biennale for 2016, where does... Western Sahara fit into that? Well, this is a very exciting development that, and quite a surprise that, that has been kept under wraps, I think, f- until it actually happened. A, um, a Swiss architect called Manuel Hertz had been studying for a long time the whole architecture of the refugee camps, and he's written a big book with a whole team of uh, students and other people. They've got wonderful photographs of things, but they've tried to understand the way that they've developed as a architectural and as a functioning entity. The fruits of this have then led to having this stand for the first time as nation in exile has been able to be represented as a, a nation contributing to the Venice Biennale in architecture, and they've got a pavilion, which is, surprise, surprise, like a tent, and inside the walls are lined with enormous tapestries where the uh, women of the camps have woven tapestries of various maps and diagrams made by the architects of different villages and houses and all of that. In addition, there's some very large-scale photographs, a very beautiful installation and a very exciting development. How long does that go on for? I'm not quite sure, but you could find out very easily the dates of the Biennale. I suppose it's at least a month. Two other very positive developments that have happened in the last uh, little while, well, just in the immediate period around the death of Abdelaziz was just before a seminar in the European Parliament called Made in Conflict about the European Court of Justice which uh, managed to suspend a trade agreement between Morocco and the European Union and the implications of that and it was suspended it didn't exclude goods coming from occupied Western Sahara. So that's one interesting thing, and later we'll have a report back about that. 
and then just immediately after the death of Mohammed Abdelaziz, the weekend of the 2nd and 3rd of June, conference in Paris. And I can't imagine what the atmosphere can have been in that conference. They had brought a lot of international academics to speak for two or three days about different aspects of the whole issue with a kind of bias towards social sciences, anthropology, politics and and so on. And again, we look forward very much to hearing further developments. And I think the reason that we're quite I'm quite excited to hear about these positive developments is because the whole peace process got onto rather rocky ground. Morocco had been rocking the boat, trying to provoke a crisis by expelling members of the United Nations peace mission, MINURSO. 84 members of that mission were expelled. The Security Council has given them a period of three months, which will be ending this month, at the end of this month, to restore the mission to its full capacity. Quite dramatic, really, to have all of these things happening right at that period. But the general message people have had is that Morocco had overstepped the line and had to come back into line. I hope that that will happen. Polisario Front will elect a new leader after 40 days of mourning. And again, we'll be reporting in the future about that. Be very interested to see whether they choose somebody out of the presidential entourage who are all probably much of an age of Mohammed Abdelaziz or if they try to find somebody from a younger generation to take over the reins. And thanks to Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. And if you're interested in travelling there for the film festival, their website is AWSA, A-W-S-A dot org dot A-U. And if you'd like to find out more about the film festival, the word is Sahara, F-I-S-A-H-A-R-A. I'm sure you'll find it if you do a search on your computer. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR where the time is coming up to 14 minutes past five. And as we've been saying, next week is Radiothon. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. 
I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band Stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Kate Lee is Executive Officer of Union Aid Abroad, AFIDA, and has recently returned from a visit to Nepal and Bangladesh. I spoke with Kate yesterday and asked her first about Nepal, where just over a year ago, earthquakes devastated a huge area. A violent 7.8 magnitude, followed weeks later by a 7.3 magnitude aftershock which altogether killed over 9,000 people, injuring over 22,000, destroying nearly 600,000 homes and damaging nearly 200,000. I asked her first what she saw and what she was told about the clean-up and the reconstruction projects. AFIDA had been involved in, had raised rather over 300,000 Australian dollars from Australian unionists and others in Australia as well as through a fundraising appeal organised by one of the global union federations, Uni Global, and they organised for a number of their affiliates, or their affiliates all around the world to contribute to the fundraising appeal via AFIDA. So we were there to see the progress of that work. Nepal was deeply affected. You know, As you know, there were two major quakes, but there were at least 400 other minor quakes. So, you know, in terms of physical damage, the death toll was over 9,000 people, but there were 23,000 people estimated to be injured and more than half a million homes destroyed. And, of course, the psychological trauma has gone on even a year after. We were there just three weeks before the anniversary of the first major quake in April. And people were living in fear of, you know, more quakes and certainly there's a level of ongoing suffering. But sadly, the major reconstruction work has only just started and the major setback to this has been the political unrest and the unofficial blockade by India, which went for over four months in the latter part of last year through to February this year. And so that meant that reconstruction was very, very difficult. And when we were there, we met with um, one of the chief political advisers to the Prime Minister and that reconstruction work of homes was only just beginning. And the the blockade by India affected the reconstruction deeply because Nepal receives more than 80% of it major import by India. Why was India blockading the aid coming through? Oh, look, it's a deep political conflict between Nepal and India for a long time. But in short, India is, um, you know, unhappy with the constitutional process of Nepal, even though Nepal, of course, is an independent sovereign nation. And in a sense, it was an unofficial blockade, but it made it very, very difficult. There were fuel shortages for people and people couldn't meet their daily needs through to that blockade. But in terms of the work that UnionAid Abroad was able to support, we worked with one of the main trade union centres known as GFONT 
as well as the group of unions that are linked to Uni Global, one of the, as I said, one of the global union federations, and that group of unions um, covers workers in the service sector, the service economy, which makes up about 40% of Nepal's overall economy. So we worked with those two trade union centres, and we were able to provide you know, temporary shelter to um, nearly 400 families, as well as distribute food and other necessities to a 1,000 families. Those unions made their own decisions about which communities they were going to support and, and assist, and they were often the rural communities, which are obviously the poorest, and through their efforts they helped rebuild, you know, um, 100 homes in one rural community. Now, there's a second group body of work that's about to happen, which is a longer-term community development project that the unions have decided to undertake with a number of those rural communities, um, which and they will continue to use those funds that are raised. So there was some immediate emergency. They also ran a range of medical clinics as well for, for, for people in the rural communities. So there was a, a big group of, uh, a, a major body of work that happened immediately after the earthquake, which was emergency assistance, rebuilding of homes, medical clinics. The blockade interrupted a lot of other work that they wanted to do, and now they're beginning to work again on a major, more reconstruction, as well as a broader community development project with a number of rural communities. Over 20,000 people injured. What facilities did they have or do they have now to assist those people? And I've seen pictures of many people losing limbs, arms, legs. What's happened to those people? Well, look, Nepal is still considered um, one of the poorest countries in the world. You know, on the Human Development Index, it's 145 out of 187 countries. It's got a very low income even though they've now got a progressive government, they've had an unstable political environment there for decades. They had a decade-long civil war uh, that ended in 2005. So, you know, they've got a long way to go and they've got an economy that is based on agriculture still and based on an informal on informal work and an informal workforce is very large in Nepal. No, they don't have all of the facilities and services that we might expect here in Australia in terms of assisting people with injury. And it's a long, hard battle trying to get them. They are about to start the reconstruction process for homes. And this is a year after the earthquake. Um, It's shocking, but, you know, they're about to start the major work of rebuilding over half a million homes through a process which means that people will get some money um, directly for them to do some rebuilding and then they will get some in-kind reconstruction support that's being funded by the government. So it's about 25% cash and about 75% in-kind. The government is struggling at the moment because, as you're probably aware and many listeners would be aware, there are many people migrate from Nepal for work internationally, mostly to Malaysia and the Middle East. And in fact, the GDP of Nepal relies on remittance, uh, remittances from those workers. About 25% of the GDP is from money sent home from migrant workers. So the government's on a major program to try and attract back a lot of those migrant workers through training in construction so that they can help rebuild the homes. But that's a very big, a big job. It's a huge job to rebuild over half a million homes. But the government's made a, a commitment to that, a funding and a political commitment, and obviously they've had a level of international help with that too. 
You said a major employee or part of the economy is agriculture. How is that impacted by the earthquake? Well, significantly, although it's starting to get you know back, I guess um, together now. But you know, a lot of the agricultural products are in the region bordering India. Includes tea, rice, corn, wheat, sugarcane, various forms of farming meat, and the industry involves the processing of those agricultural products as well. But that has been able to be re-established. A lot of people work in the brick-making industry as well in um, in Nepal. But of course, you know, people are still impacted by psychologically as well as. You know the physical impacts we've talked about, and loss of home, and that process is only slowly starting to be re-established. The process of reconstructing people's homes. I'd imagine that a lot of children are also working with the the poverty and the underdevelopment. Yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, child labour is a major issue in Nepal. The, the estimates are that there is about two million children working when they would be at school in Australia, so under 17. And, you know, that's a variety of children that work either like full-time or, you know, part-time linked with some schooling. But still only a small proportion of children finish primary school in Nepal, certainly not anything like our retention or completion rates. That's for primary school, you know, let alone high school. And there certainly are is a higher rate of girls who are engaged in child labour than boys. Boys are more likely still to be encouraged to finish school by their families. Obviously, part of the main reason continues to be poverty of families that forces children to work, but lack of adequate education. And the situation, of course, it, as it is in many parts of the world, it's worse in the rural areas than it is in the urban areas. It's a major issue that the government is trying to address, but it's, you know, obviously it's interlinked with a whole range of questions about poverty, education, the informal nature of work that means that, you know, you're expected to undertake, like, farming work in relation to your schooling day, even if you do go to school. So there's a range of complicated issues there. I'd imagine there's a big burden on women as well. Yeah, um, one of the things that we were talked when we met in Nepal with the unions that have been undertaking this emergency relief and reconstruction work with the rural communities. One of the things that they found, and they were shocked to find it as well, and they want to try and think about ways in which they can support their government to address this issue, but they ran medical clinics across a number of rural communities. And overwhelmingly one of the issues that came out during that that work was that women had some of the largest health complaints and medical conditions like a prolapsed uterus was really common because and you know in part because of the large number of children that women have but also because of the very hard physical labor that women do in brick making which is a very common form of work in Nepal making the bricks but also physically carrying them on your back in baskets and so for women in rural areas the physical work is can be at times extreme and it's causing them serious physical and health problems. What's happening with tourism because that was one of the earners for the country and I'd imagine that a, a fair number of people actually worked in that industry? 
Yeah, well, it was hard. It was hard hit, of course, in the period after the earthquake, and is slowly re-establishing. But yeah, it um, certainly contributes an important part of the economy. Although obviously not the largest in terms of overall GDP, that's certainly through agriculture and in terms of in the employment of actual people, it's still agriculture. But tourism obviously plays an important part and, yes, was hard hit by people feeling anxious about, you know, being stuck on a mountain <laughs> um, or at base camp, you know, in an earthquake. So there was a massive drop in tourism which is just beginning to re-establish. Is there any dissension against the government or are they accepting that things are bad and that India has contributed to it and trying to support the government getting on with the reconstruction? Oh, like anything, of course, there's obviously political discussion, dissent, like any country. Nepal has had an unstable political history for decades and, of course, some stability now is very important moving forward but like most things you know a situation like this does galvanize people and people there's a high degree of awareness in relation to Nepal's position landlocked as it is between India and China two very big powers it's a country of 28 million so it's sort of comparable to Australia in terms of population but sort of sandwiched between two major powers I think there's a wide degree of political understanding from people about the position that puts the country in. The second country you visited was Bangladesh and although activists and others have known for for years of the inhumane working conditions for many in the garment industries, it was the, the building collapse three years ago that got the world attention. You visited there, as I said in your latest visit, what did you find? Have things changed? Are the people saying that things have changed? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, in the discussions we had with local organisations and local unions, as well as local organisations that focus on occupational health and safety, people would say, yes, to some degree it has, but obviously not enough. How it was put to me by one person was that, you know, the tragedy of the Rana Plaza murders, which effectively is what it is, due to absolute abrogation of occupational health and safety standards. You know, it was put to me that, look, we would be 10 years behind where we are today if that disaster hadn't happened. And in a sense, what this person was trying to say was that it forced the issue to international attention and forced an international debate that has brought some gains. Now, the loss of life was shocking and should never have happened, but we also know that there were loss of lives continually every month in that industry um, in Bangladesh before that major, the major building collapse. So, you know, from the point of view of some, at least in the country, the debate around what is acceptable in safety standards has rapidly escalated as a result of the international campaign. But of course it's not enough and not sufficient. We visited some of the factories, so-called factories, which are effectively rooms of workers which make um, garments for the domestic garment industry, which sits outside our international scrutiny and outside that international campaign. And the conditions there were horrific and no Australian worker would ever put up with them, ever, um, nor should anyone. And such as? Uh, 
small cramped conditions if you can imagine the size of an average you know living room in Australia with 60 people working in there um, and sleeping in there at night the places where we visited we it was reported to us that the women didn't sleep there at night but the men did three toilets to service a thousand people um, in a you know seven-story block of these small rooms in filthy conditions staircases where we moved up and down the staircases um, you know the, the stairwells between the floors pitch black no lighting whatsoever you know, at least a third of the people that I saw working in, in those circumstances, I thought were children, were under, you know, 17, 18. You know, the conditions were horrific. You know, we met with the union, one of the unions in that um, building that were trying to have some level of organisation, but incredibly hard. And the circumstances for, you know, the women who came to work during the day, the core issue that the union was trying to argue for was some kind of, you know, in a sense, informal childcare facility in the building so that the women who walked sometimes up to an hour every day to get to that, to get to those factories, didn't have to leave their kids with the neighbour or on their own at home, which was what was happening. Obviously, from our perspective as Union Aid Abroad, we see that workers having a right to organise effectively is fundamental to changing this situation. But of course, having laws and regulations that give people you know, rights around safety and around the right to organise would sit alongside of that. But, you know, in Bangladesh, you know, unionisation rates are incredibly low, 2% or, or something of, of that vicinity. So it's um, a pretty dire situation and needs, you know, support from the international union movement as much as possible. Were you also told that families actually work at home? You'd have a, however small their house is, that the whole family would be working sewing machines or cutting or whatever? I didn't get to see or witness some of that. It, you know, of course, it's probably no doubt makes up part of its um, part of its garment industry. What I did notice is that even when you walk through the streets of Dhaka, the presence of women is very low, and that's because women are either working at the home and in the home, undertaking that kind of work, or undertaking domestic duties at home and aren't visible. But yes, absolutely, that would form a large part of the informal economy. You said the worst conditions were in the factories that are producing for the domestic economy. What about in the international garments where they're being sold overseas? Yeah, well, of course, people have seen some you know, major improvements in in the conditions of those factories. And the Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Safety, which is an agreement between, you know, the 190 major brands, 1,600 factories and also trade unions, admittedly for fire and safety standards only, okay, so it's not a comprehensive agreement and that's been part of the criticism, it's not a comprehensive agreement for all conditions at work and rights to organise, but it is a process which has tried to enforce fire and safety standards. And three years on, they've assessed 1,500 factories for safety standards and, where necessary, closed them down. Now, that's not an easy ongoing process. Meeting with the unions that are trying to engage in that process and trying to make sure that it happens and that factories are closed down where it's not, it's not possible to improve them, you know, that's a difficult ongoing process. But it has been... That accord has delivered a higher 
degree of fire and safety standard for some of the industry. Just finally, Kate, where does that leave shoppers here in Australia who want to do the right thing by workers in countries like Bangladesh? Shoppers should obviously take the time to look at the brands that are compliant and those that aren't. You know, people can do that. So people can figure out which of them, the major brands are compliant and which aren't. But also people can back all of the campaigns to improve workers' right to organise anywhere in the world, whether it's here in Australia or it's in Bangladesh. Fundamentally, workers in Bangladesh are going to need to have legal rights to safety and safety at work, as well as legal rights to organise and form a union without intimidation in order to improve their wages and conditions at work. And union aid, for, for union aid abroad, that's fundamental. And that's a right for all workers, whether they're in Australia or whether they're in Bangladesh or anywhere in the world. That's the main way in which we're going to improve safety standards and the rights of workers in factories in Bangladesh. Thanks so much. Okay. And that was Kate Lee, who's the Executive Officer of AFIDA. If you want more information about the brands that comply with the proper standards, I think you could go to AFIDA's website. It's spelt A-P-H-E-D-A. And I think you can follow the, the prompts and find a listing of the, the brands that comply with the proper standards. It's 5.36, one more interview, and then it'll be time for me to go and get ready for a big week next week. Have you ever wanted to write songs about important issues and help change the way people think about them? Change the World With Your Song is a songwriting competition designed to do just that, built around the four themes of environment, social justice, war and peace and political satire. It has age categories from kids to adults. For more information about this national songwriting competition, go to changetheworldwithyoursong.com, a 3CR supporter. The Deep Sea Mining Campaign is an association of non-government and community-based organisations and citizens from the Pacific Rim region who are concerned about the impacts on marine and coastal ecosystems and human communities. The key aim of the DSM campaign is to raise the profile of issues amongst government and the general populace. The project of concern at the moment is that of Nautilus Minerals Seabed Mining Project in the Bismarck Sea of Papua New Guinea, which it promotes as a lucrative new face of the mining industry. DSM, together with the Alliance of Sawara Warriors, are spearheading the campaign with a detailed critique of the project, which the company has admitted is an experiment. Yesterday I spoke with Natalie Lowry from DSM and asked her first, who are Nautilus Minerals? Nautilus Minerals is a Canadian-based company. Um, it's not a, a large mining company, but it's the first mining company that's been given the green light for the first deep-sea mining project in the world, which is in the Bismarck Sea in Papua New Guinea. When did you first become aware of it? There's a few of us aware about Papua New Guinea becoming the first sort of experimental ground, as, as we call it, for this new industry, probably in around 2007, 2008. 
And in 2009, uh, Professor Richard Steiner, who actually did a lot of work around the Valdez oil spill up in Alaska, he went to Papua New Guinea and worked with a lot of Indigenous communities around this concern and, and, and put out a bit of a report looking at the, I guess, the environmental and social impacts that would happen. And then in 2011, myself and a couple of other colleagues, including Catherine Kermans from Mining Watch Canada, and also my colleague, Dr Helen Rosenbaum, with sort of the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, talked about responding to the Nautilus environmental impact assessment. So we produced a report basically pointing out the deep flaws in the in the EIS and the environmental impact assessment. And that's sort of where we started, I guess, as a campaign. So that was around 2011. And since then, you know, our focus has been predominantly around Nautilus and the, their Solwara One project in the Bismarck Sea in Papua New Guinea and building strong relationships with communities and NGOs on the ground in PNG and across the Pacific. And I guess we're placed in trying to provide some science, connecting regionally but also internationally to maybe some larger organisations. A lot of it has been just educating people on what is a new frontier industry. What actually are they planning? So in the Bismarck Sea, there's actually three types of proposed deep sea mining. There's the mining of hydrothermal vents, which spew out very uh, high-grade ores, gold, copper, and they're sort of the depths of maybe 1,500 to 2,000 metres. Then the next type is cobalt crust. They're a lot deeper. They're around 5,000. And then the other type, which is more in international waters, is manganese nodules, which is up to 6,000, you know, six kilometres deep. In terms of the deeper deep sea mining, we're still probably a little way away. And why it's really important that we focus on the Solwara One project and Nautilus is if this actually starts operating, so they're proposing that 2018, they'll start operating, they've been building the machinery, we know that it will become open slather for our deep sea mining throughout the Pacific. So it's almost like, you know, the bigger bigger companies and are definitely watching to see if Nautilus can be successful in exploiting the deep sea and the Bismarck Sea. But there's currently over 1.5 million square kilometres of ocean floor already under exploration and leasehold in the South Pacific Ocean. So we know that um, this particular mine that's been given the green light is a very important one that we, we, in terms of our campaign and also community across PNG, basically want a ban on seabed mining. They see themselves as the guinea pigs for this industry and in a country where we've seen such devastation from land-based mining and poor regulation and monitoring, you know, there's obviously deep concerns about what goes on in their seas and many of the coastal communities are economically, socially, socially and culturally tied to their oceans. What is the machinery that they're building and how does it work or how is it planned to work? It's not something that I have like in-depth knowledge. I'm not a techie in that way, but they're like big, big kind of diggers. There's like robotic machines that will basically move along the bottom, and then it's almost like a dredging style, and then it's sucked up in a pump into a ship on the surface that then extracts the ore that they want, and then that would have to go off to another site to actually be processed. So that's in the simplistic form what it is. But we are talking about large machinery and the countries involved in making that include England, they include Germany, 
and even parts, I think, have been made in South Africa and also in the Middle East. So it's, it is an international industry, there's no doubt about it. And recently I was in London um, and they had the International Deep Sea Mining Summit, which is an industry summit. And so myself and some friends from the London Mining Network, the Guy Foundation and Warren Bond went down and made you did solidarity action for people in the Pacific. There's a an amazing network that's formed across Papua New Guinea of over 20 organisations and communities called uh, the Pacific Sawara Warriors. And their messaging is very much, we don't want this, we don't want to be an experiment, we want a complete ban on all seabed mining. Um, so we're trying to support that messaging as much as possible. There's no, there's no real science behind it. They're, they're not... Um, adhering to the precautionary principle. We really do not know what the risks will be. Unlike mining a mountain where we actually can see what the damage is, we're not going to have the access like that 1,500 metres down into the ocean. So understandably, communities are really concerned. There hasn't been a process of free prior and informed consent. And some of these communities only live 30 kilometres away from the site, which is really not that far when you're talking about disturbing a seabed. We don't really know what those impacts will be to the fishing industry in Papua New Guinea and um, in particular to coastal communities. Has the government given the OK, the government of PNG? Yes, they have. Without consulting anyone? There's been Nautilus government consultation processes, but they're not, you know, uh, communities are really disappointed. They're not given all the information, they're given information they don't necessarily understand, and it's certainly not following a process of free, prior, and informed consent. And, and these are Indigenous communities, and consent is really different to consultation. And so, my colleague recently spent a month in PNG going to the communities that are closest to the site and it was very clear that they're deeply opposed to this happening. So it's very much been the central government has said yes. There was a petition, a massive petition in 2012 hand-delivered to the mining minister in PNG, Byron Chan, and he still hasn't responded to that. And in a place like Papua New Guinea, I mean, in Australia, we have online petitions all the time, so we click a button. But in Papua New Guinea, to have a petition of 25,000 people, that means people have literally gone into villages, spoken to people, people have handwritten their signatures. It's a much, it was actually a very significant petition that was probably one of the biggest they've seen in Papua New Guinea. And it's not just the areas closest to the site, it's actually really mobilise people across the country because they just see this as another case of post-colonial kind of corporate impunity coming in and um, imposing this industry on them as, as, you know, guinea pigs as an experiment. What environmental studies have been completed to convince the PNG government to give its approval? None. None. (laughs) No. I mean, the hydrothermal vents, which are really unique ecosystems in themselves, are not particularly well studied because, purely because of the access to them. And there, there are scientists who have, have spent their entire life studying these sites. But they even still say, in fact, a report only came out last week, or a, a journal article came out last week, in which a whole lot of scientists have said that we still don't have enough research. And within that report, they also talk about the fact that hydrothermal vents play an important role in nutrient cycling 
and acting as a sink for carbon and methane, which we know is, you know, two powerful greenhouse gases. So we don't really know what it means to disturb these very old ecosystems and what that could play out in terms of, you know, the rest of the ocean. And we think the ocean moves as well. So if you're going to be dredging, how, how big are those plumages? How far will they spread? What layers of uh, the ocean will they move into? The toxicity in that? And how does that then spread up the marine chain, you know, eventually into human diet, let alone the impacts that it, it could potentially have on marine life? So there's too many unknowns, which is why we've always argued for the precautionary principle. And in New Zealand... They had a very, they've had a very long campaign around the shallow seabed mining. It's slightly different. It's um, mining of the, the sand for iron. And that was a community campaign. It became so huge. They had historic public hearings across the North Island. In the end, the company wasn't given the license on the grounds of precautionary principle. There wasn't enough science to prove that the impacts would, would be you know, detrimental to the environment. What encouragement or incentives have they given the PNG government to go ahead? Is it known? It's like, a, I guess, in a sense, a joint venture. They actually had a dispute. It was held off for a good year and a half. There was a bit of dispute around the financing. It went to, through arbitration, actually, in Sydney, and eventually they've come to some sort of deal. The Bank of South Pacific is also a funder behind the seabed mining. I think, unfortunately, what we're seeing across the Pacific, um, and not all Pacific governments, the Cook Islands and Vanuatu are taking a much more precautionary approach and want to have very long and very detailed consultation processes with community, which is good to see. But I think they're sort of sold, you know, this is going to be economical and they'll make money, but we don't even really believe the economics are behind it because there's just way too many risks and too many unknowns. And even if it is economical, is that really going to trickle down, as we often don't see in the mining industry in the Pacific, is that actually going to trickle down to community anyway? So it brings up a lot of the same issues we see with terrestrial land-based mining. But I think when you're talking about the deep sea, there's just a whole lot of even more unknowns for us because it's such a new industry, new types of machinery. We don't really know what would happen if there are accidents, you know, and things like that. So I guess that's why we're strongly saying there needs to be a ban on seabed mining. More broadly, there's been calls for a moratorium until there's the science to prove that there won't be the impacts. But for community and PNG in particular, they're pretty much calling for a ban on seabed mining. They don't want the industry in their waters. Well, it's well known that the fishing industry is just about wiped out fishing communities in many parts of the world, if there's accidents or things go wrong out in off the coast of PNG, that ruins their fishing industry and it destroys the local communities. They won't be able to survive anymore. Is that correct? Yeah. Look, absolutely, there's definitely that risk. We're aware that there are some people within the fishing industry that have concern, but I think because there's a lack of science it's hard for them to make a real decision of whether they'll stand up against it. So, you know, I guess that's something as part of our campaign is to work close with scientists to really try and provide the information to the fishing industry that they can kind of see that this actually, whilst we know the fishing industry is also being so destructive, that adding this to the, you know, industries within our oceans is, is actually only going to make it harder for um, fisheries as well. And there are a number of scientists who are behind this um, 
campaign to let people know and, and maybe, you know, it's hold it until they've got proper evidence that it's not going to cause great problems? There needs to be more scientists. I think the nature of people who work in science is they, as campaigners, we're probably a little bit more political and willing to sort of <laughs> take a stand a bit sooner than scientists are. But I think we're starting to see some more articles and research come out where they're really, they're really saying, hey, maybe we need to question this. And that's a good thing. We've definitely had conversations with scientists. There's definitely scientists that are working with industry who have spoken to us privately saying we're really, really happy that a campaign like this exists. So we know that the voice of these communities as well as just a broader campaign to raise awareness is really important because it's such a new industry. The industry hasn't started you know, and we've been working around it for five years. So there's an advantage in that. And um, we still very much a go-to for a lot of media internationally because there is an actual... None of the big NGOs, and we're just a very small group of people really, but none of the big NGOs are really taking on this issue as yet. They're still sort of discussing it. A lot of their approach will probably be around marine parks, which was, you know, a good thing. Our concern is that you don't want to say, give us a marine park here and then you can mine here. And also, what does marine parks mean for coastal communities? Does that actually impact them as well? So there's a whole lot of discussions that need to happen around, uh, you know, of course we want marine environments to be protected, but not just... We don't want a marine park to happen so then that allows the industry to go over there and mine because the reality is there's no borders in the sea and the ocean moves, as we know. There's all this upwelling, there's currents. So, yeah, just placing a marine park somewhere doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Well, how much time have you got? When's the expected or hopeful start of this process? Well, they were originally going to be starting in um, 2013, then it moved to 2015, and now it's 2018. I think part of that is partially because there is position, part of it is investment, and the other part is probably technology in terms of being able to actually build and test the technology before they can go ahead. I mean, it's quite normal for mining companies to propose starting something way before they know they're really going to as a PR way of getting money in. So at this stage, they're saying 2018. So, you know, as a campaign in, in terms of communities in PNG, we still have had some time to try and really um, take this issue up and continue to sort of argue that um, PNG shouldn't be the experimental ground for a new industry. Absolutely not. And really question whether we really need to be mining in our oceans. I guess another part of our campaign is really looking at how do we move away from mineral dependence? What are the transitions? And particularly things like urban mining and looking at things like circular economy. And we're not just reducing and recycling. We're actually looking at anything we design, including our phones, is designed from cradle to cradle so we can actually reuse. And it's not just getting thrown away as we know. We have this mass disposal of, of electronics that get taken to Asia and... You know, so it's it's a bigger thinking too of well, how do we move away from this mineral dependence? Do we really need to be mining our oceans? We say no, we don't think we need to be mining our oceans. The industry will, has argued, and this is one of their sort of strong arguments, is that this is much cleaner and greener, um, more environmentally friendly than land-based mining. How they come to that, we don't really know. <laughs> 
because there's just too many unknowns to be able to say that, but that's, I guess, a lot of their PR spin. At this late stage, is the PNG government listening at all to the people? No. I mean, PNG in itself is undergoing some... I'm not sure if you're very aware, but university students across the country have been striking for the last month for their Prime Minister to step down. So there's a lot of wanting change in Papua New Guinea as a whole, and I think... A part of that, there's a whole lot of things going on. People just want, you know, housing and they want access to jobs. They want all the things that we want. But there is also a movement which is really looking at well, what is development and what sort of development do we want in Papua New Guinea? Is it this development which is so much based on extractives or do we want to create our own alternative development? So, you know, that's kind of another whole thing that goes on within Papua New Guinea. But, you know, there's no doubt that Australia plays a key role in Papua New Guinea, not necessarily around this industry, but with our with our aid, our corporations, and the country being so close to us, it's surprising how little about what goes on Papua New Guinea is um, actually documented in our news and in our media. What are you asking people to do to support the people in PNG? Yeah, well, at this stage, we don't have any sort of precise action. I would say. If people want to get informed, they can jump on our website and there's a lot of information there about what deep sea mining is, what we see as possible risks. We have um, four reports that are on the site, three that we've produced, one by Professor Richard Steiner. The website is deepseaminingoutofourdepth.org. It's all one word, deepseaminingoutofourdepth.org. And if you go to resources and the reports, and then there's also fact sheets, there's just some good info just to get people to get their head around actually what this industry is about and there's plenty of media articles which include a lot of voices from the Pacific and I guess sort of where the campaign is, is heading now. We have had a petition running with the VAS although that's sort of finished which got nearly 800,000 people signed on which was hand delivered to the International Seabed Authority last year. They're the ones who make the decisions on the exploration licences. We hope to have some sort of action we can get people to get more engaged in, but at this stage it's just about raising awareness as much as we can and people, um, you know, maybe look, we, we can look at doing some sort of solidarity action in terms of um, showing our solidarity with people in the Pacific against this industry. Yes, because it's not just PNG. If it, if it goes on there, it'll just spread because there's an awful lot of ocean around. That's right. Well, it's, you know, Fiji, Cook Islands, Vanuatu, um, it's all through there. And then it also goes into international waters, which I guess is a whole other, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the commons. So, you know, what do, rights do we have to be able to protect our international waters as well? So, yeah, there's no doubt that this issue will continue to grow and watchdogging Nautilus and, and keeping an eye on what's happening in Papua New Guinea is, is sort of crucial as to the future of this industry as to whether it will really go ahead or not. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you very much, Dan. And that was environmentalist Natalie Lowry and that website, deep sea mining out of our depths.org. That's all for me for today. I'll play a couple of messages and don't forget, next Tuesday it's Radiothon. Bye for now.